You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is James Kunetka. He has written a book, which I've just finished, called The General and the Genius, Groves and Oppenheimer. He has also written other books, nonfiction. He specializes in the atomic age. He also wrote another book on Robert Oppenheimer called The Years of Risk. I stumbled upon his book uh, quite accidentally. I am so glad I did. It's the best account of this particular project I've ever read. Although Richard Rhodes's book, The, the Making of the Atomic Bomb, yeah. is excellent. It's a little science heavy for me. Uh, James, you do a great job of helping out us non-sciencey people explain exactly what's going on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Let's just jump right in with kind of 2023 and the influence, the impact of the movie Oppenheimer. It is taking the country by storm. It is tailor-made in a lot of ways for social media. Hopefully it is reigniting, no pun intended, uh, a, a, an interest in this project, in the decision to use the bomb. What do you, as a historian, what do you make of what's happening in 2023 with regard to the movie, the man, the bomb? Well, first of all, let me say that I've seen the movie. I like it. I have recommended it. And it has served many purposes, not the least of which is to reacquaint several younger generations of Americans and probably young people worldwide to uh, uh, a story that now sort of lies in the past. We we face, uh, even today, the, the battle between Russia and the Ukraine, there's constant mention of nuclear weapons. Uh, and that may not translate into a lot of younger lives, but Oppenheimer has brought up again uh, the individual who led the effort to make the bomb 
and the consequences, both for himself, the people who worked on the bomb, and of course for the for the victims of the bomb in Japan. I'm resisting the urge to go in reverse chronology here and talk about the decision first. We'll talk about that towards the end of the podcast. But for for someone who either hasn't seen the movie or doesn't isn't really sure the context of of this project of the Manhattan Project, you do a terrific job in your book about saying, okay, this didn't necessarily come out of nowhere. And once once the theories, once the the perceived threat or potential of Nazi Germany to create an atomic bomb, things moved very rapidly. Is that a fair statement? Very fair. I think you might you might think of this as a series of tributaries that feed into a single river. One of the tributaries in the last century is the rise suddenly of, of the study of physics, particularly quantum mechanics. The second is uh, post-World War I, the rise of the Nazis in Germany, and along with that, remilitarization within a culture and society that was highly advanced technologically. And third, of course, the, 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 the outbreak of war. And in 1939, and then two years later, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, all of those combined to bring together, you know, individuals and moments and sort of movements that resulted in probably the greatest technological and scientific shift that occurred in history. It was just this confluence of, of events. In fact, now looking back almost uh, 80 years, what you can see is that what happened at Los Alamos, what happened with the Manhattan Project in general, were a series of uh, management techniques, the use of, of big industry and, and unparalleled dollars. Everything that occurred in the 1940s actually led to putting two men on the moon in 1969. And that's how powerful that movement was. And even if we no longer think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the legacy of the bomb, the legacy of Los Alamos, the legacy of, of Robert Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves are still with us. It's just these are the tributaries that we're not always looking at. Einstein, he was probably the most famous scientist in the world at this time before leading up to world war ii how important was his letter so scientists come to einstein and say we need your help to get the americans attention on this you've got the credibility and the name if you do something then you sign your name to it the president of the united states people will pay attention how what's the process of them going to Einstein and how important is that letter still? The, the letter is important um, largely because it came from Einstein. But remember, the letter was delivered by somebody else, Alexander Sachs, to President Roosevelt, not by Einstein. And the reason I don't want to downplay it, but I think we need to put it in perspective uh, the discovery of fission occurred in the latter part of 1938, so that by January of, of 1939, 
that discovery was known all across the world, but certainly in the United States. As soon as scientists discovered that the atom could be split, it was immediately clear that enormous power lied in that splitting. And that if you could then create a chain reaction, in other words, split an atom, split more atoms, you could release unparalleled energy, which could either power a ship, light up a city, or destroy a city. So that was well known. And the scientific community in this country largely led, at least in the physics area, by scientists who had escaped Europe because of the Nazis. They were clamoring at all of the universities. And you can be sure that Franklin Roosevelt, particularly his scientific leaders, already knew about the implications of uh, technically, or at least feasibly, of about a bomb. I think I could. I don't want to. I don't want to demean it, but I think the letter was like the frosting on the cake. But the cake was already there. What are some of the names of these scientists? As you said, a lot of them were immigrants from Europe. It's interesting how, throughout the war, Hitler's racial theories led to his demise. Not only in what we're talking about now with the scientists, but how he fought World War II in Russia and places like the Ukraine who welcomed the Germans as liberators and he slaughtered them and so on and so forth. Who are some of the names we're talking about here in terms of scientists? Because really, I just can't think of another era where so much brilliance was operating at the same time. I guess if you take Da Vinci and Michelangelo. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, yeah, it, it well. Let's see, let me tell you, just off the top of my head, Edward Teller, who later went on to lead the, the pursuit of the thermonuclear bomb, and Rico Fermi, who got his Nobel Prize in 1939, Eugene Wigner, who was one of the three people who visited Einstein in his house in Long Island, uh, Hans Bethe, really one of the one of the deepest thinkers and one of the most productive scientists, just that number alone, uh, they made their way across starting in the latter part of the 1930s. And not only did the Nazis, you know, get rid of these scientists, but they forbade the teaching of what they called, and this is their term, uh, Jewish physics. And of course, in Jewish physics, lay the power of the universe. It is one of the great ironies. World War II starts, basically, we'll say September, September 1st, 1939, when Germany invades Poland. By the time the United States is attacked by Japan on December 7th, 1941, Germany has had, let's say, a mostly uninterrupted honor roll or dishonor role of success. Hitler was known to to fancy these sort of deluxe weapons, often to the detriment of, of tanks and machine guns. Before we move on to the Manhattan Project, I just kind of want to close this loop on Hitler. The Germans still had plenty of very talented scientists. Hitler was interested. How much... How worried should we have been of the German atomic bomb effort? And was that worry proportional to what they could actually achieve? Uh, The answer is yes and no. Here's the yes part. 
the Germans were enormously inventive. And let me just give you three of their wartime uh, marvelous achievements. First of all, the jet fighter, which appeared uh, in the skies, but too late to be effective. The V-2 rocket, which changed the course of war and ultimately would be the vehicle by which even more terrible bombs, thermonuclear H-bombs, could be sent anywhere in the world. And of course, the V-1 missile, which of course is the progenitor of the, you know, of the, you know, of these land missiles that we can fire you know, from ships or from land. The problem is all of them came too late in the war. And one of the simplest explanations for that is that Hitler was always more taken by the spectacular rather than the strategic. So he didn't early on in the late 1930s and even in the beginning of the war press to develop long-range bombers, which could have extended the reach of his bombs. He had some, but mainly the jet fighters, because those would have been useful. He could have maintained air control, air superiority over Germany, uh, you know, for at least a longer period of time. It, it's 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 hard to say. It's you're you're it's like the individual who inherits a great deal of money, but instead of reinvesting most of it, spending very little, he spends almost all of it and then is left with nothing in the end. And I think that was the the fate of science technology. But there's no question. The problem is is that because it came so late, they could simply not they could not achieve what they wanted. The V two which could attack London or Antwerp, would appear silently out of the sky, but it only contained a one-ton bomb. And that was not enough, really, to do enough serious damage. So the German atomic bomb program, how close did it come to even half of the achievements of the United States? Because is it Walter Heisenberg? Was he the mm -hmm. one yes. who was incredibly brilliant? Yes. Yes. And and he was the one who was leading the fission project in Germany. He they got we didn't really know all this until until we really were in Europe, I think, in 1944. Uh, the government, the army had sent over a special team just to find German scientists, but particularly nuclear scientists. The, mo the closest they got, despite endless YouTube videos saying otherwise, the closest they got was creating a small reactor. Um, and their concept, their theoretical work, oddly enough, was limited. And we know this now because as including eventually Werner Heisenberg, when Germany began to fall, they were taken to England and put in a special house, a big manor house. Every single room was was microphoned. And when news of, of the bomb in Japan dropped, Heisenberg and the others were disbelieving. And as they began to talk about it, they re they revealed their concept was a bomb of such enormity and requiring so much uranium that it would have been impossible for them to have produced it in a reasonable period of time. When in fact, the little boy bomb that fell on Hiroshima you only used 155 pounds of the uranium isotope U-235. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is James Konetka. We're discussing his book, The General and the Genius, Groves and Oppenheimer, The Unlikely Partnership That Built the Atom Bomb. Let's follow up with Oppenheimer before I ask you about Leslie Groves, who is so astoundingly impressive. 
But Oppenheimer, where was he? How did he get drawn into the project? What were his qualifications? What were his qualifications, not only as a scientist, but as a project leader? Uh, Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist. He was, as we probably all know, and if any of your listeners have seen the movie, you will know, he was enormously gifted, intellectually brilliant young child. He uh, went to Harvard, graduated in three years. His intention was to study chemistry. He went to Cambridge, but discovered at Cambridge, he really was not that interested, and he was clumsy. Um, He kept dropping test tubes. He, But at the same time, he became aware of the emergence of quantum mechanics, this very rare and now breaking new field of physics in Germany. He went to Germany, got his PhD, studied with, among others, uh, Werner Heisenberg, came back to the United States in the 1920s and took up a post at Berkeley. So from the late 20s to the late 30s, he was helping to build up the United States as the premier place for the study of of, uh, theoretical physics. Um, When 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 the when the uh, when the nucleus was split, and when the implications of that became known, it transformed physics because suddenly it wasn't just theory. There was this very reasonable, practical um, use for this kind of theory. So everybody began to explore it. He was he got involved with doing some theoretical work. He helped lead a, uh, a group of projects paid for by the government that at this point was already supporting research in many different fields of science, but related to war. And eventually, when the Manhattan Project was created in 1942, and General Leslie Groves was made the director of that, the military director, It was clear to Groves that there needed to be a place isolated and secure where scientists could do, could make the bomb. Oppenheimer became involved, but that's, it was kind of a series of steps. One by one, it brought him closer and closer uh, to the position. He realized, I think by 1940, that as a professor, he had, he had published many papers. He was well-regarded, but he should have received a Nobel Prize if he was going to get one. He had been nominated, I believe, five times, but didn't get it. So as the war approached and this possibility of this weapon became possible, his colleagues, Ernest Lawrence, were already involved in the project. And he saw this as a possibility for not just contributing to the country, doing his part for defense, but establishing a name for himself. So he actively went after the directorship, and that's kind of the process by which he got drawn into it. Now, this is ironic because this man had zero management experience. I would be surprised if he led a group of graduate students that existed more than five or six people. So we're not talking about somebody who managed a university or even a physics department, but we know he had something inside of himself. And did he ever get, I don't think he did, but correct me, he never received the Nobel Prize? No. And then, of course, once the war was over and the bomb, you know, the atomic bomb had been used and was out there, then nobody, the Nobel Committee was not going to give the prize to somebody who had made a bomb. So that eclipsed it. At that point, I don't think Oppenheimer cared that much anyway. There's an argument that could be made he deserved the Peace Prize. 
And I think you could make a very valid argument for that. His partner in your book is Leslie Groves. He is a career military man. I think he went to West Point, graduated yes, from West he Point. Did. Uh, he has the greatest one-two punch of anybody I've ever encountered in terms of what did you do for the war? I'll ask you about that in a second. Tell us a little bit about Leslie Groves and why he was selected, other than the fact that he incredibly had the back-to-back projects of building the Pentagon and then overseeing the Manhattan Project. That is just absolutely astounding to me. Go ahead, James. He, as you say, he was a career man. His father was a lawyer who then became a Presbyterian minister, who then turned around and joined the army as a, as a, uh, as a minister. And as a consequence, young Groves, young, he never went, never used Leslie. He was always known to his friends and family as Dick. But uh, Dick Groves grew up in the Army, moving from place to place. And I think he really enjoyed it. He uh, applied for West Point, didn't get in, went to eventually to MIT for a year or two, studied engineering, applied to West Point, got in again. He graduated fifth. Um, High grades, well-respected, but not with a whole lot of friends and colleagues. He was pretty much of a loner. He then, this was 1918 when he graduated, too late to actually participate in World War I, which meant that he was doomed to be an officer and to serve in a low rank for a very long time. Because as soon as World War I ended, you know, the, the government stopped funding the army at a reasoning level. Grove spent a lot of time in engineering projects, including the Panama Canal in Nicaragua. But as you point out, he found himself in Washington. He built millions of dollars of military housing. And I don't remember if it was in 1940 or 41. He took over the Pentagon building. And as you say, he finished it in record time and under budget. And when he was, he actually had received an assignment to go overseas as the engineer to the um, the the uh, attack on um, on Africa, the torch campaign. He was going to be the Army chief engineer for that. When he was approached by uh, General Somerville, and he was said, I have a new assignment for you. And Grove asked, what is it? And he said, well, it's this project, this special weapon. And Groves had heard about it. He had even helped contribute some ideas to it. He said, I don't want it. I'm, I'm going overseas. This is important to my career. And Somerville just very simply said, you do this, you do this, right, and you'll end the war. So he took over the project. It did, and he spent, my guess is, 24 hours, maybe 36, thinking about it. And he realized that it was just that. If he could pull this off, it was going to be an achievement of a lifetime. It would, in fact, not only end this war, but might end all wars. So when he took it up, he took it up completely. That was it. 27-24. He was, he was after it. And he spent, as we know, until you know August and uh, September of 1945, directing this project that took on the name Manhattan because uh, engineering projects often took on the name of where they were located. And at first, the offices were in Manhattans in New York City, and then Groves moved them to Washington, D.C. And he turns out to be like Oppenheimer, 
absolutely the right man at the right time. He comes to the project with all the credentials. Oppenheimer does not. That's what's part of the mystery and the magic of the story of the two men. What were the first sort of obstacles, the first, I'd say, to-do list? That's the only thing I can think of for both these men. They're starting something completely from scratch. It's one of the most amazing feats in human history. I mean, it's not like they're refabricating fabricating or refurbishing something. It's a completely new endeavor. And what were some of the initial obstacles they faced? The first obstacle, let's take Groves first, because Groves was involved before Oppenheimer was in officially the Manhattan Project. Groves, the first decisions he had to make is he had to decide where two gigantic plants, industrial plants, were going to be located. One was going to produce uranium-235, which used an elaborate process called gaseous diffusion, but miles and miles of pipes through which you push uranium gas at every step, you put a smaller and smaller filter, and eventually you end up with small amounts of this isotope. Uranium itself doesn't fission. It can't be made explosive. Only that particular isotope. The other plant called for making gigantic nuclear reactors, because there you could put conventional uranium, cause a chain reaction to occur with various elements, and then a byproduct would be plutonium-239. Because without these materials, there would be no bomb. That was his first assignment. Then he needed to assemble the right team of scientists to actually build it. He could take over the industrial side. He could deliver the material. He needed people to deliver the bomb itself. On on his first trip out of Washington, he stopped at uh, what was called the Metallurgical Lab at the University of Chicago. And it was a disaster for Groves. He, it was his first time that he met with these theoretical physicists. And uh, the question that just buffaloed him was, he said, well, look, how much of this material are you going to need? And, you know, one scientist, I'm going to exaggerate here, said, well, somewhere between, you know, one ounce and 200 pounds. And that's not Groves being the man who had to deliver something, needed something more precise. He left. Chicago, and he made his way to California, to Berkeley. And it was at Berkeley at a party that he met Robert Oppenheimer. And the two, you know, started conversations. And Rose was very taken with two qualities that Oppenheimer had. First is that he could explain complicated things in very simple terms. And two, he was not condescending, unlike the scientists who did not like Groves. Groves didn't help things when he went to Chicago and say, look, I'm General Groves. You you people work for me. I don't think that probably was the right political <laughs> approach. So as, as Oppenheimer gets involved, his first task was to pull together a team. Well, let's preface that. Both men needed to find a place to create this secret laboratory. Ultimately, they pick this boys' school on top of a plateau in northern New Mexico. Soon as that decision was made, which was in November of 42, Oppenheimer had to scramble because he needed people to start work. That was his big task. One of the things that comes out in your book, which even having taken a class on this time period and actually being, I was stationed at White Sands Missile Range where uh, Ground Zero is. What I didn't remember a lot of was the timeline. 
So it wasn't like, yeah, we're going to do this. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're doing it. There was a long lag as they searched for people, places, materials, money. Yeah, absolutely. Because there were a variety of places uh, that were considered. Groves didn't want a laboratory close to a university or a big city because what he feared was a leak that the, the, the more interaction the scientists had with ordinary people, you know, the person at the grocery store, their doctor, something might leak out. His concept was to isolate people in some way. And that's why that mountaintop, and by the way, the, the name of the mesa top was called Los Alamos, hence the name, the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory. But it was essentially a boys' school. It was a very exclusive boys' school, which at the time charged like five or $6,000 a year. Um, you know, it, it, each boy who went there had their own horse, but it only consisted of a small number of buildings. So as soon as they made the choice, Groves went to the essentially to Marshall, who claimed the land under eminent Devane as part of the war, war effort, tossed the school out. Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall. George C. Marshall. So he initiated the procedure to take it under the War Act. Um, then they had to start bringing in people because some things were obvious, dormitories for people to live in, laboratory buildings. There was already an idea of what kind of equipment could be brought from existing laboratories, a Van de Graaff machine from the University of Wisconsin, for example. So, but in January of 1945 or February, Basically, there was a school with a lot of snow and a couple of, you know, uh, ditch diggers trying to carve out this frozen ground. I mean, it there just wasn't much there. Is it? I read this somewhere. So correct me, please. At one point, the Manhattan Project's facilities were using 25% of the total electricity used in the entire United States. That probably is a reasonably safe number because Los Alamos itself would not have drawn that much. But the plants at Oak Ridge in Tennessee, and for your readers, they can Google both those locations and you'll get aerial photographs. These are massive installations, massive. And along with each installation were towns to accommodate the people because each one of these plants in, involved thousands of people. The Manhattan Project employed at its peak 600,000 people. So these were not small backorder operations. And that's why Groves really deserves as much credit, if not more than Oppenheimer, because he kept the whole business going. You obviously had a choice when it was time to title your book. Why did you give the general? top billing uh you, you you this is a secret so i'm gonna i'm gonna spill the beans um uh it was my girlfriend who suggested it. she and i said no i think it should be the genius and the general and she said no she said i i read she's an editor so she she said no she said general groves comes alive in this book and and you realize that Groves would have been there regardless of Oppenheimer. It could have been somebody else besides Oppenheimer, but Groves was there. And I don't mean to short shrift Oppenheimer. He played it. The two of them were critical players. But that argument made sense, and so I went with it. Now, when I say the general of the genius, in my ears, it sounds better than, than the genius and the general. But that's only because I've been saying it, and it's on the book cover. But thanks <laughs> well, for asking. I would Oh, you're, you're welcome. The, you're when the it, first to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, well, 
you know, Oppenheimer gets, a, gets I think, is probably in your book a little bit more than yes. Groves. So it made me wonder. And then I looked at the spine of the book, which is right here in front of me now. And I went, well, it may not be really a lot of deep thought since general alphabetically would come before genius. Maybe he just decided to do it that way. But your your explanation makes yeah, great just, sense. Unfortunately, not not very profound, but it's, it's the life of the historian. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is a terrific historian who's written a marvelous book, James Konetka. The book is called The General and the Genius, Groves and Oppenheimer, The Unlikely Partnership That Built the Atom Bomb. What were some of the obstacles to overcome? by both men, but perhaps especially Oppenheimer, when it came to recruiting people to come to this place and be involved in the project? I think one of the first obstacles um, was just simply its location. Um, Oppenheimer, uh, and eventually he assembled a small team, Ernest Lawrence was another one, who went out and helped recruit people. Um, Many, keep in mind that this was an there was, there were probably a dozen, maybe two dozen big names: Enrico Fermi, Edward Teller, Hans Bethe. These people were the were the individuals that Oppenheimer really wanted to come, but and if he could get them, it would be easier to get other people. But the actual body of of individuals would be young people in their probably in their middle twenties. And they would come out of they would come out of colleges, graduate schools. Maybe some of them would be doing postdoc work. These individuals had a choice. They could go into the service uh, and serve, which some chose to do, um, or they could continue on war work in the universities. They could stay in the cities where they had movie theaters and restaurants and popcorn machines. The the what Lasalle was promised was this place in New Mexico that nobody heard about. And indeed, as people began to make their way to Los Alamos, they were struck by how crude it was. No paved roads. You know, when it rained, the roads were mud. I mean, the word got around, but Oppenheimer was extremely successful. And I think he gave the same pitch that um, that Groves made in a slightly different form. I think what he said was, look, we know the Germans invented fission. They discovered it. We know they're working on a bomb. They still have enormously bright people. They may well get the bomb first. And if the Germans get the bomb, they're going to use it. On London, we, on New York City, on Washington, D.C., yes, on exactly. Paris. And if we, therefore, need to get it first, and particularly those individuals who had escaped Russia, uh, many of the Jewish scientists, uh, uh, Edward Teller, um, Hans Bethe, they knew what the Nazis could do. They had suffered through the 1930s. And I think that it was as much that willingness to serve to prevent fascism from succeeding as it was the prospect for science. 
I think the younger people, the, the Americans whose whole life had been spent in Madison and Minneapolis and San Antonio and Los Angeles, I think for them, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And as they heard who was coming to Los Alamos, can you imagine a university on the hill where you can work with Enrico Fermi? I mean, this is an extraordinary opportunity. So it became easier and easier to, to get it. But Oppenheimer never fully stopped recruiting people. We mentioned a few minutes ago that Oppenheimer never received the Nobel Prize for Physics, but several people who were involved in the project did. Who were some of these scientists? Hans Bethe received his. Uh, Edward Teller never got one. Um, oh, there, uh, Los Alamos actually has a, a video. You can go to YouTube and it lists them. That, of course, that naturally, that's the only one I can remember at a moment. But it's a handful of people. And it isn't for their work on bombs. It's what they did, right. what they did after the war. Um, but you, I think, again, just to, to help illustrate for your listeners, the, to understand the magic of the Mesa top in 1943 to 45, the best science in the world was occurring there. Endless dollars. It was before the war. Science was conducted in universities where a professor might have a $100 grant to do an experiment. They had unlimited funds. They could buy everything. They could do virtually everything they want. And they had silver plate. They had a AAA top priority. So if they needed garden hoses, which they did, they could get them. And the, the idea that you could work with these other individuals, these big names, and, and literally be smashing atoms, changing the world. And even with the prospect of ending war, it was, and I interviewed dozens and dozens of these young men, they said, I can't explain to you the magic. And not only that, Los Alamos turns out to be this exquisitely beautiful place. It is a bit, I don't cotton too much to, to the desert and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, you live being, there. <laughs> being, being in a Midwest, boy here in indianapolis but there are times where the desert evening is just you cannot beat it it is so beautiful i agree you talked about unlimited dollars is this victor davis hansen wrote a book called the second world wars which is phenomenal i'd love to have him on the podcast it's the best book about about any one like sort of grand subject i've ever read and i'm I'm quite sure that in the book, he made the assertion that the B-29 program cost more than the atomic bomb program. No, he's, he's right. The atomic, the Manhattan Project cost in wartime dollars about $2 billion. The B-29 cost $3 billion. How is that possible? Can you, you're a historian. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> it, it was the B-29 was a sublime achievement. I mean, it was the apex of planes in 1945. But it was it was complicated to build, and it required building and rebuilding and redesign. The engines were prone to burn out. Uh, pilots in the beginning did particularly like to fly them. There were all kinds of issues. Um, pressurization of the cabin was a challenge, and just the sheer. Now remember, the three billion includes production, and I don't remember the exact number, but I believe it was around thirteen or fourteen hundred B twenty nines were produced during the war. Uh, again, younger generations may not realize how powerful the United States was, along with the bravery of their fighting men and women. 
the production, our capability to produce. I, I, I want to. I'd like to introduce when we talk about Japan a comment that the uh, Empress of Japan was uh, uh, purportedly said about American production, but I'll save that for later. Can you imagine 13, 1400 planes? A B-29 was coming off the off the assembly line every three days. An air, aircraft carrier every week. Edward Gray, the uh, British foreign minister during uh, World War One, likened the United States to a gigantic boiler and said, once lit, there is no limit to the amount of heat it can produce. <laughs> Amen. That, well, we prove that. Well, the reason I bring the B-29 up was to ask a question. And if it was in your book, I don't remember it at the time right now. Excuse me. Was the B-29 designed with the atomic bomb in mind? Uh, I don't think I don't think so. Um, the B-29, above everything else, was designed for distance. It did. Um, remember, I mean, design on the work began in the probably the late 30s or early 40s. So, but serious work in the in 1943, 1944. It was designed to essentially deliver heavy loads long distances, because there was no way that conventional planes, uh, until the B-29, could leave even from Honolulu and fly uh, nonstop to Japan and return. And remember that, you know, we didn't capture Guam until 944 and Tinian Island. Those islands made it possible then to have these planes take off. The one, the, but I do want to add a caveat. Once the basic parameters of the two types of weapons developed by LaSalle was a gun bomb, a long bomb, which the army called Little Boy, and a big fat circular bomb, which the army called Fat Man. Once they knew the general dimensions, the B, there were special B-29s that had to be modified to accept these. And so there were special modifications made to the airplanes that did not exist. If you ever visit the uh, the Enola Gay in the uh, in the Air and Space Museum in DC, huh. you'll notice that the bomb bay is is longer than you know most. But if they hadn't designed, if the B twenty nine was say a year and a half behind schedule, how would the Americans have delivered the bomb? Well, there was one other plane that could have done it, but Groves ruled it out, and that was the British Lancaster. The Avro Lancaster? Yes. And Groves, by by God, he was not going to have a British plane deliver the bomb. So anyway, as it turns out, you know, design and production and delivery of the bomb coincided with the B-29 very nicely. Let's chat about the Brits for a little bit because they had a program. They called it Tube Alloys. And they were certainly in the top rank of powers, but were very quickly outstripped by the United States. What was the... What was the British atomic bomb program like at the beginning of the war? And what were the contributions of the Brits to the, the making of the bomb? And don't say Claus Fuchs, because I'm going to ask about him next. Okay. Well, uh, in, in terms of the uh, uh, the British began to appear at Los Alamos, for example, in 44. But what the British where the British were is that they had done extremely fine theoretical work. Uh, in fact, their estimate of the amount of fissionable material necessary, uranium-235, was far more accurate than the American estimates because we'd been making our own. So, And they had both fine theoretical physicists, but also 
individual physicists who were working, applied physicists, they actually built things. And um, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, um, when they met in Placenta Bay, they agreed to share uh, information. And so what the British gave was all of their theoretical work, and they promised their best scientists, which just, by the way, happened to include Klaus Fuchs. But when they came, they were in various locations, but the team at Los Alamos were actually very useful. Um, they helped design the, the the gun bomb fires one piece of material into the other. The, the implosion bomb literally takes a tennis ball of plutonium and compresses it uniformly. And you do that with explosives. But how you design the explosives is the challenge. The British made serious contributions to that at Los Alamos. They also made very excellent contributions to what, what theoretical work was being done on the thermonuclear. So they were valuable participants. And by the way, everybody agrees that their parties at Los Alamos were the best because they, <laughs> the, the bottom line, you drank before you ate. <laughs> I mentioned Claus Fuchs. Uh, I think David Greenglass is the other fellow prominent. Uh, a few minutes ago, you discussed uh, General Groves's fear of leaks in this information and espionage, despite everyone's best efforts everyone loyal to the United States or allied cause, there was a, a considerable amount of very pernicious and for the Soviets, uh, beneficial espionage. You detailed it in your book. Talk about it for a little bit with us, please. Well, um, secrecy and protecting the bomb was preeminent. It was, it was uh, Groves, in addition to getting a bomb, you know, that was up at the top because um, the Germans, conceivably even the Japanese, but even Groves was thinking post-war too. He really wanted the bomb to be an American, you know, ownership. I mean, if he had to share it with the British, he had no choice because that was the decision made at the presidential level. But what the Klaus Fuchs was particularly, there were four, as it turns out, four spies. Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos, Klaus Fuchs was the only foreigner. Uh, he was German. He was Lutheran. His father was a Lutheran minister. In the 1930s, he was highly active as a social. He was a socialist and perhaps even a communist. He had to flee Germany. So he went to England. He, I think he already had degrees. I think he may have gotten an advanced degree there and England. And he was working on their atomic, the Tubaloys project. And he therefore subsequently was brought over as the team. The other three were Americans. It was David Greenglass who gave information on the explosives. Uh, there was Ted Hall, uh, who graduated from Harvard at 18 and went to work. Brilliant theoretician who, unfortunately for us, was placed in the theoretical division and consequently uh, knew all of the secrets of the implosion and, and gun principles. Uh, he was useful to the Soviets. The, both, neither one of them knew each other. Uh, Ted Hall was an American. But for the Russians, it was particularly useful because everything that Klaus Fuchs sent Ted Hall, to the extent that he knew it, he sent the same information, and the Russians could confirm that they weren't being fed uh, misinformation. And there was a third person who was there as part of the army, uh, who I don't remember his name offhand, recently been revealed, but he was... Uh, 
too distant from anything significant. The, the big thing that Clausewitz gave was the, the fission bomb, the implosion bomb. It's really a complex device. And that saved that saved the Russian years of design. Interestingly enough, when the Russians detonated their first atomic bomb, if you can look oh, at an image 49. of it, 49. Mm-hmm. You can look on, you can Google it. It's exactly like the, it looks exactly like the bomb dropped on, uh, on uh, Nagasaki, except for the tail fins. And it's a duplicate internally. The Russians have admitted this with one exception. The one thing the theoreticians did not have access to was the electronics. So how you detonated all of these explosives, they didn't know. The Russians actually did that on their own. As the Manhattan Project progresses, there is a starts to creep into the discussion about where are we going to use this? Are we going to use this? We'll save Japan here for a few more minutes, but when did the when did the discussions, the conversations among Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, General Marshall, and others, when did that discussion start to take place and crystallize, i.e., are we going to use this, and who are we going to use it against? I think the discussions, uh, remember Los Alamos, the Manhattan Project was up and running by early 1943. Los Alamos was created, officially opened in April of 43. But by 1944, by the middle of 1944, the concepts of these two different bombs was pretty clear. Actually, getting them to work, there were many technical issues, of course. So I think at that point, uh, they 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 were on the radar. Uh, there was every intention of using the atomic bomb in Germany had it been available. In fact, Roosevelt called uh, Stimson and Groves uh, and Marshall in, or maybe it wasn't Stimson, maybe Marshall and Groves in, to brief him. He wanted to know if the bomb would be available, you know, in late uh, December or January. And part of that was because of the Battle of the Bulge. Before the Battle of the Bulge, the Americans thought the whole war might be wrapped up in a matter of weeks or months. The Battle of the Bulge proved that the war was going to take a lot longer, months, maybe even six, eight, nine months. So the bomb was needed. It just simply wasn't available. It was always on the radar, you know, when it became possible when the when the B29 especially loomed as a possibility as a delivery vehicle, then the atomic bomb you know, became uh, a realistic uh, possibility. In fact, probably starting in late 44, but certainly by early 45, um, the the Army Air Force, the, the military planners, and Los Alamos already had begun to identify cities, and there were at least five cities that were taken off any potential. Uh, actually, six. Uh, obviously, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, Nikita, Kokura, something, and then of course Kyoto, which was sort of the religious capital. Stimson took that that city off the list, and those were held in 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 reserve. And then the bombing became, by conventional means, became the business by February and March. And I want to remind your listeners of something which is lost to history, but it's important when you understand what the atomic bomb did. On I forgot, in the middle of March, or maybe March, somewhere in the 1920s, March 20, 23rd, 300 and I think 55 B-29s took off from bases at Tinian and Guam to firebomb at low level Tokyo. So 
300, let's just say 355 B-29s dropping hundreds of tons of bombs killed in a killed immediately. It's it's estimated at a hundred thousand people that night and burned down perhaps as much as a quarter of the city. Should point out that Japanese cities at that point were largely wooden, small buildings or factories made out of wood. So it's important to keep that that number in perspective when we talk about the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, but by April, uh, the gun bomb is a reality. It can be used probably within the month. All they're doing is waiting on the final supply of U-235. The implosion bomb has to be tested. And of course, that leads to that event in the southern New Mexico desert on the Alamogordo bombing range that we now call Trinity. But the, the atomic bomb was already on, on the radar uh, by, by the middle of the late part of 1944. They were just waiting for it. Was there any pushback from members of the United States government or the, the scientists at these various laboratories? Yes. In other words, okay, we've helped you create this, but we don't want you to use it, or at least maybe there's an alternative to using it in an actual Japanese or German city? Yes. Um, I think it was not from, certainly was no opposition or concerns from the military. I don't think there were any diplomatic concerns to speak of. I, I suspect that, uh, that um, I'm not even sure the Secretary of State, you know, would have known about it, um, would have had only basic information. There was concern, but the concern was at places like the meth lab in Chicago, the metallurgical lab. Um, and it was led, um, um, you know, it was led by people who had worked on the bomb, but, uh, you know, they they didn't have the, the total responsibility in Los Alamos. There were probably people at Los Alamos, too, who, who at least thought to themselves, my goodness, what, you know, what am I working on? But I think we have to understand, and this is very hard for today's generations, that that by 1944 and certainly by 45, the war had exacted an incredible toll. The European war was over, the Battle of the Pacific. But the two most costly battles of World War II were just in terms of numbers for that battle, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And it was American soldiers, GIs at Okinawa, who who watched Japanese civilians, women, mothers, walking to the edge of the cliff, throwing their baby off, and then jumping after them because they had been told by the Japanese army that they were going to be raped and burned alive. Now, if there was that kind of opposition, and by the way, I would point out in Iwo Jima, 22,000 Japanese at the beginning of the battle. 216 were captured alive at the end, and most of those were so badly wounded they couldn't commit suicide. The numbers in Okinawa are staggering. 110,000 army dead Japanese and 120, maybe 150,000 civilians. Now, if those numbers were any reflection of what was to come when the U.S. invaded Japan in November, phase one, it was going to be horrific on all sides. And I think that's something we always need to remember because that was part of the part of the milieu, the catalyst that that helped format the decision. Japan had no history of surrendering as a country throughout its history in wars or anything like that. Plus, at the same time, you had the kamikazes uh, happening in the naval battles. 
it's interesting to read the letters and the diaries of the of the soldiers and the sailors and the Marines who were over there and their astonishment at the culture and I guess religious religiously fueled culture of the Japanese they're just not going to surrender like you're going to kill me anyway so I'm going to fight to the death and it was I think it was Marshall and Stimson estimated to Truman, not a million deaths, but a million casualties, a million casualties involving an allied invasion of Japan. I, and, I, and, yes. And the war would be, maybe last another two or three years. You're talking about 1947, 48. It, you know, of course, you know, we, we, we don't have a final, you know, we don't have the final result because the war did in fact end, but that was the reality of the time. And um, before we actually talk about the decision, I think it was clear, certainly it was clear to Roosevelt that the bomb needed to be needed to be used if it, if it was going to help, because um, it wasn't just American lives or British lives or Canadian lives or any of our allies. It was the Japanese and the Germans as well. And civilians who had no real role in the war except to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So even though this will sound strange, there was a line of thinking that as terrible as this weapon is or was, um, it might still be humanitarian in the end because although it would cost lives to use, it might prevent a great many others. Now, that's a thinking that's hard for us today to grasp. What happened on July 16th, 1945? Ah, uh, well, you were with, uh, if you, where were you at White Sands? Were you at the, the uh, southern end or the northern end? The southern end, the actual okay. base, base camp. And I, all right, then you are 100 miles away, more or less, from ground zero. Um, it's a place where everything changed in a second, uh, actually in less than a second. History, war society, culture. Um, it's, it's, I think if you, there are, there are other great moments in history, certainly wars. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I mean, any name, any great war, any of the civil American civil war locations and battles, but those kinds of battles took place over time. You had, you know, the discovery of the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas by the Spanish conquistadors. You had the discovery of, of fireworks and gunpowder by the Chinese. Those are all powerful things, but they occurred over a, a longer period of time. The atomic bomb was the fulfillment of intellectual horsepower. And when it detonated, it didn't just produce a bomb, it produced a whole new world of possibilities. And it was in a second. And as you know, uh, today, unlike when you were working there, it's opened once or twice a year to the public, just ground zero, nothing else. Um, and you can see the birthplace of the atomic bomb. But it's one of the few places you can go where you can see that in you can see the res this eighty years later the residue of this moment of place and time, um, it's it's a hollowed spot, but not one to glorify. It's just hollowed because human beings did this, and it's the double-edged sword. What is smooth and consequently you have electric power, nuclear power, or it's sharp, and you have the bomb. And that was that was the product of July sixteenth, nineteen forty-five. It's where they tested the first 
atomic bomb and had the actual detonation, which you describe so, so wonderfully in your book. We have a few more minutes left with James Konecka, who has written this marvelous book about the relationship between General Leslie Groves and and the genius, Robert Oppenheimer. We're discussing his book right now. July 45, the test is made at the same time. Truman is over in Potsdam for a uh, summit with Stalin, Churchill, and then eventually Clement Attlee. Uh, he describes, he kind of breaks the news to Stalin. Stalin's like, oh, how very good. It'll be of great use. You know, acts like it's no big deal when, you know, as you describe in your book, he knows more about the bomb than Truman does. Truman doesn't know anything about the bomb until he becomes president, even though his committee uh, in the Senate had tried to investigate these massive expenditures. And he was kind of warned off by Stimson, like, you're going to have to trust me on this one, you know, Harry. Um, what do you think of, of Truman's decision to use the bomb? Your you're, James, you're president of the United States in in late July, early August, 1945. What do you do? Well, let me tell you, I'm president in July of 1945. And what I'm looking at is I'm looking at a, at a war-ravaged Europe. This is uh, Truman's first visit to Europe since he served in the army in France in World War I. And he's in Berlin. In Berlin, this magnificent city of several million is now rubble. And he's seeing women shabby in shabby clothes, emaciated children, remove, piling bricks and trying to plow their way through the rubble of this once great city. And the, the cost of the war becomes increasingly clear to him. And he meets Stalin and Churchill and then Attlee, and he comes back home and he's looking at the latest statistics, the latest deaths from, at this point, the Battle of Okinawa is over. And what he also knows in play is the hundreds of thousands of the GIs that have been fighting Europe are now on ships and they're making their way back either around the Horn to, you know, to be, to come to the Pacific or they're coming to the States. Thousands are already on trains making their way from the East to the West. Hundreds of ships are being, have already been uh, placed in Guam in uh, other locations. Um, the army has ordered, I think, 2 million Purple Heart medals in anticipation of the battles to come. And he's looking at all this data. And I think what he's thinking is, I have a weapon which might end this. How can I not use it? And then he's probably asking himself, well, what if I don't use it? And then he's asking himself, number three is, how could I possibly go before the public after this invasion of Japan in which we have 50, 100, 200, 300,000 deaths and of, of Americans and say, well, I had this weapon, but it's such a terrible weapon, I couldn't use it. I think that's his thinking. And for better or worse, that's his legacy. The historiography on the decision to use the atomic bomb has changed. I won't say grown, but it's changed. I had a professor in graduate school who said that a lot of it had to do with Vietnam and the questioning of the use of American power. But there was very little question at the time after it was used. I mean, you have to put yourself still in a kind of a Pearl Harbor mindset, but the American people, how did they react to the use of the bomb? 
Well, as soon as they found out about it, and I think as soon as they realized and they, they got to see photographs uh, of the Hiroshima Nagasaki, I think they were joyous. I think I remember uh, a public opinion poll in 48, before the before the arrival of the Russian atomic bomb, um, that even a year or two after the war, there was something like 70 or 75 percent of the American public um, approved of the use of the bomb. I think they were just glad to get people back. It's true that it changed. Um, I, I want to, but I want to quote your reader something which is in the book which you read because it's a very tender moment. Um, the day after Hiroshima, Groves is briefing General Marshall, um, Secretary of War Stimson, and Hap Arnold, who's the Army General in charge of air. And he's showing them photographs that have been flown overnight, you know, uh, reconnaissance photos of these devastated cities and and the cloud. And apparently, you know, he's a bit too enthusiastic about the <laughs> the discretion. I mean, the discretion. And uh, uh, it was Marshall who said, well, General, um, aren't you thinking about uh, the Japanese? There were a lot of Japanese killed in those bombs. And it taught, it caught Groves off guard, and he paused for a moment, and he said, you know, I was thinking about all the Americans that were killed or starved or beaten to death on the Bataan Death March. And I think that's the sentiment of Americans in 46 and 47. It would be very, uh, be a grievous error on my part if I did not mention this aspect of the atomic bomb tragedy you you donate dedicate a few pages to it but the sinking of the uss indianapolis mm-hmm. uh, i did a podcast a couple years on that with uh, authors of the latest book latest and best book and actually uh, in my neighborhood growing up we had an indianapolis survivor his name was james o'donnell we were all scared to death of him, of course. <laughs> of and, course. Uh, that ship, that mission, and those men, is it tough to write about that? You've written on some pretty you know, tough subjects, but to me, that's the tragedy within the tragedy that illustrates the, 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 the bad luck of war, the fortunes of war. I, th- I think you, I think you put it very eloquently. It is, it is the fortunes of war, and you know, fortune is not necessarily always good. Sometimes it's bad, and you know, these sailors. I think to myself, um, they made record time. You know, when they left, uh, did they leave San Francisco or was it uh, San Diego? I think it was San Francisco. I think so. When they left, they have on board these people in these sort of faux naval outfits. I mean, they're clearly not naval people, but they're dressed as officers and they don't speak the lingo and they don't know the aft deck from the foredeck, but they're along for the ride and they know something has been brought aboard or some things. And they make record time. They get to Hawaii and then they get to Tinian and they deliver this thing and then they're heading back. And uh, this is part of the endless debate, you know, did the captain fail to zigzag uh, what, or was it just bad luck that the one of the few surviving operable Japanese submarines happened to be in the area, spotted them and fought on them and then sunk them. And 
again, for a variety of reasons, they were out of contact. And so it took, as you well know the story, and as your authors would have described, days to rescue. And people, those that managed initially to survive, some of them were eaten by sharks as they floated. Others, driven to madness by thirst, drank seawater. Uh, others just gave up. That's war. You know, we, we think of somebody... The, the image of in the Spanish Civil War, it's a famous photograph. The, I don't oh, know which Robert side. Robert By Apple, the guy being shot and he's falling, you know, uh, and Kappa captures this thing. I mean, that's war, but we don't think about these accidents of these wars. And I, you're absolutely right. War is so much more terrible than the battles. And I think, you know, the... The latest thinking, I mean, it goes up and down, but a very realistic number for the price of World War II, all theaters is about 75 million, the majority uh, civilians. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, they, and, and that's the tragedy. The Japanese mothers killing their babies on, on it happened on Guam too, but on Okinawa, um, they didn't know any better. And we've all seen that haunting image taken on Okinawa of the young boy sitting on a stone and he's shaking from fear. And he's, you know, he's just literally, he's shaking because he's in the presence of the, of the evil Americans. And yet, you know, he survives because the Americans, in fact, you know, did not kill him. Um, lots of, lots of sad stories. Um, war, everybody, General Groves, Marshall, all of them, Eisenhower, they all said, with the exception maybe of Patton, that war is the worst thing, you know, that man in, engages in. What happened after the war with General Groves and with Dr. Oppenheimer? Uh, this is one of the great ironies, um, because the movie Oppenheimer will tell the story of Los Alamos, but it also tells the story about his security hearing in 1955. What happens, both of them pay the price for what they did at Los Alamos. Oppenheimer had been politically active uh, during the 1930s. He claims never to have joined the Communist Party, but his girlfriend, who eventually, by the way, killed herself, was a communist of the party. His brother and sister-in-law were active members. His wife was a communist member. He had many friends. He contributed, maybe not directly to the communist party, but through a variety of left-wing, certainly, activities. And Groves overlooked this because Oppenheimer seemed so critical to the project. But after the war, Oppenheimer is the father of the atomic bomb. He's on the cover of Look and Time. Um, but And he's made the chairman of something called the General Advisory Committee to the newly created Atomic Energy Commission. That's the government agency that's going to control all atomic research and development. And it's a powerful position, and he's well sought after. He's eloquent. He's bright. He can even be funny. But he regrets now having worked as avidly the bomb. And by the way, it wasn't just working on the bomb. He actively engaged in making the decision to use it and to select the targets. So he has more reason to regret than maybe just the ordinary scientist at Los Alamos. So while he doesn't come out and campaign against the H-bomb, because remember, the H-bomb is driven in part by science, but then in 1949 by the Russian fission bomb, because clearly if they have that bomb, they're going to get the thermonuclear at some point. So the job is we need the thermonuclear before they do. Oppenheimer is not excited about it. 
And he runs afoul of the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, a man named Louis Strauss, who eventually decides to get him and to get him out of government. Oppenheimer's security clearance comes up for renew. Oppenheimer applies. It's rejected by the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission. He appeals. There's a hearing. He loses. And the trial, the trial, the hearing becomes public. It's horribly embarrassing. It reveals his, his weaknesses, his affairs. It's just, it's devastating. So he goes, he goes basically, leaves the public scene. Groves receives a lot of attention. Uh, he's the general of the day. He's almost as popular as Eisenhower. But in order to get the bomb made, he steps on a lot of toes. He uses every technique he has as an army bureaucrat to get what he wants. And the fame that he gets exceeds that of a lot of generals who fought battles, actual battles. So he doesn't have a lot of friends among the general ranks. So in 1947, I believe, or maybe it was 46, um, Eisenhower comes back. Tabor Marshall's role as chief of staff. Groves, who reports to the chief of staff at this point, comes in for his review. He is told by Eisenhower, you will not be promoted again. Here is a list of offenses against your fellow officers, your egregious publicity, uh, public, uh, public publicity hound. Groves leaves the meeting and retires the next day, goes to work for uh, private enterprise and then uh, lives quietly out his life. But both men pay for what they had done in a personal way. It wasn't just Oppenheimer. Did they stay in touch? Yes, they did. And I looked at all of their correspondence that's in the National Archives. And they got, they, they, you know, they were actually colleagues during the war, I mean, real colleagues. They're not, they weren't, and they never would be beer drinking buddies. I mean, I don't see these guys getting together Sunday afternoon over a barbecue and beer watching football. That's not them. But they were, they respected each other. And it was always Dr. Oppenheimer and General Groves. And after the war, the letters they wrote each, remember this is before email, were always my dear Dr. Oppenheimer, my dear General um, Groves. They were very solicitous of each other and they kept in touch. And at Oppenheimer's um, memorial service, which was at Princeton, sitting in the back in civilian uniforms was Leslie R. Groves. He attended. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. James, are you ready? You bet. And I just want to say this again before we move on. Your book really is magnificent. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. First question, what was your first job? I worked for my very first job was other than mowing somebody's lawn. But the first real job was working at a Mexican restaurant in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I was hired in the morning. And after dropping two plates of enchiladas on people's laps, I was fired at the end of the day. Food service was not apparently in my uh, career. What was your first concert? Ricky Nelson. And I, I have the extreme pleasure of seeing the Rolling Stones when they came to Houston, Texas in 1973, maybe 74. That was a biggie. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh, now that's hard because I've read so many good books. You know what? I would read 
um, because it's about war and it's a novel, but it's based on real events. It's a very short book. Uh, I would read James Michener's very first novel, The Tales of the South Pacific. Uh, it was made into a movie, into a musical and so forth. But these are real people recreated in the novel. And the book ends on this sublime note, which I'm going to share with your listeners now. And it's talking about the battles of the Pacific. And it says, you know, these men of the Pacific will be remembered as long as we, the men of World War II, the men and women of World War II, as long as we're alive. But after that, the names will fade and they will sound distant on the ear like Guadalcanal and Valley Forge. And unless we as human beings and especially Americans begin to take history seriously, these events that have shaped our lives even today will be lost and will be the poorer for it. Sorry for the long answer. Oh, you're perfectly fine, sir. Question four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I'm going to give you Trinity site. That's a freebie. So you get to choose no, come one. on. That's a cheat because that would be that would be number one. Okay, number two. <laughs> I've actually this is I asked this question of my friends and people I meet just to see what they say. And I the question is, what event would you like to watch? You are invisible. You can't be seen. You can't change anything. All you can do is observe. So I'm going to add those qualifications to your question. It would be that moment when Hernando Cortez reached the summit of the mountains, uh, the mountains that are form that overlook the valley of Mexico City back then, Tenochtitlan, and they see this incredible city in the middle of the lake, gleaming and glowing, painted red and yellow with these long causeways that lead to it, because they had come from Europe where they had cathedrals, but they had been fighting what they regarded as barbarians and savages. And suddenly in that moment, Cortez and his 100 or 200 Spaniards and their thousands of Indian followers are looking upon a civilization that exceeded anything they had ever dreamt of. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, oh boy, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you choose, whom would you choose? Hmm, now that's that is tough. Um, that's a very good question. I'm tempted to say Keith Richards because I read his book and I really think he's an interesting <laughs> person. Maybe my time would be better spent. Speaking um, of good parties. Yeah, I think that's it. Well, yeah, there'd be plenty to drink. Um, gosh, that is really tough. Um, I've met so many interesting people. Um, I have to pass. I'm sorry. That, that's just say Keith hard. Richards. Well, okay, we say Keith Richards. Yeah. I mean, I read his, his biography. is really interesting. He's a good writer. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, <laughs> a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been James Kunetka. He has written a formidable, fantastic, enthralling book, the title of which is The General and the Genius, Groves and Oppenheimer, 
the unlikely partnership that built the atom bomb. James, you're a terrific guest. The book is brilliant. I have already given it out as a present to like three or four people and, and I buy it new. Don't buy it used because I want you to get some coin and I'm going to dedicate this uh, podcast besides to my friend and, and veteran Pete McAllister to, to a guy. Nobody, nobody I know is going to know. And that's Mr. Jim Eccles with whom I served at White Sands Missile Range, who was an incredible public servant. I had to introduce him to Van Halen. He had never heard of them. That was my service to him. He's a brilliant, kind, wonderful man. Jim, I hope you're still a skeptic. James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.